Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Next question is from a betrayed partner. Please explain more about dissociation and compartmentalization of the addict. What tools for each side uh, do you recommend to get through uh, this not dealing with the obvious? Well, that's, uh, again, a whole bunch of questions, and they kind of mix together between what people out in the world might think and what a therapist might think. So let me see if I can parse this a little bit. Um, Oh, I was looking for the question. I might have lost Dissociation and compartmentalization of the So the way I think about this, I think, is that this doesn't start with addiction. This starts with something that happens to us when we're very young. And oftentimes, before we can even remember things, a lot of... So what this comes out of, not always, but most of the time, is someone who had to learn in early childhood that they couldn't rely on their caregivers, that their caregivers were arguing or absent or didn't want to hear about it or only were focused on themselves. For some reason, that child ended up not believing and not feeling that they had people to always turn to whenever they needed anything, which is how every child should feel. So they learn, these young children, that they have to feel better somehow. They have to be able to tolerate the lack of love, the confusion. So we find a way to go into our heads and disappear. When I was a child, Um, I'm very, I don't know what you call it. I like to read. I'm very, that's how my brain works. And so I had an encyclopedia in my room, a little kid's encyclopedia. I read it forwards and back, forwards and back. When I was reading, and to this date, when I'm reading, you can set off an alarm and I don't hear you because I can go so deeply into those words. That's how I learned to survive. I used to hang out and look out my window and watch the cars that would go by and I would check off the LTDs from the, you know, I would reward myself. Oh, I thought, saw that. In other words, I learned at an early age to go into fantasy for survival. Survival from what? Survival from difficult feelings, from difficult circumstances, from not knowing how to handle because you're only five. That way of living goes throughout the lifespan. So now what I've learned in the earliest stages of life is that when things are difficult, I need to disappear. Dissociation means going into my head or going to a completely different set of circumstances so that I can escape from these feelings. If I said to you, does the desire to, does our acting out eventually look like dissociation? Sure. 
because I completely remove myself from my anchors, from my reality. And I go off and I do this completely disconnected thing and I disappear into it, not because it's really the thing, but because of what it provides me, which is a means of escape. There isn't any difference for the addict on some level whether I was reading and reading and reading and escaping to that, or whether I go see sex workers, it's all the same thing. So dissociation and the ability to disappear comes out of an early learned experiences of survival. Unfortunately, at a later time in life, they start working against you because when you really want to connect and you want to be open and you want to share your feelings, that's, that's not there. The, either the ability and the motivation or the belief that it will bring anything. We don't honestly believe as addicts that you can do anything to make us feel better. We think we have to do it all on our own and we have to do it with a lot of control and management. And we don't really trust that other people can soothe us, comfort us. I mean, we may say we do, but when push comes to shove, we're the only ones that we believe can make ourselves feel better. And so we jump into disappearing as a way to do that. And you can call that dissociation. You can call it what happens when we're getting ready to act out, but it's all really the same thing. So compartmentalization, and I'll put my two cents on that, but compartmentalization, Dr. Rob talked about that a while ago. It's like, I love you, but I would be hurting you if, you know, if I let myself feel that I was hurting you when I went and acted out. So I have to keep those two parts. I always say siloed. So those silos don't touch. And it's very uncomfortable for addicts when we ha start having to have those silos touch and, and go, oh my gosh, you know, I love this person and I've hurt them. And how do I deal with that? So, so compartmentalization um, and not living congruently is, you know, how we, so the dissociation is absolutely, that's what we're going for. But compartmentalization to me feels like how we are able to go do that and keep the, you know, Sanity, keep the feelings. Yes. Keep the mm -hmm. feelings of, you know, I'm doing this, I'm justified in doing this, I'm doing whatever you know, and, you know, I'm going to come back to the partner that I care about. And these two things are, are not at all connected. So, and I want to just say that, go ahead, go ahead, Tammy. No, go ahead. No, I was going to go to the next part of the question. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I just want to say one thing. One of the greatest forms of this that I see what Tammy's talking about is the words about their partner. Let's say I'm married to a woman. What she doesn't know won't hurt her. I think that's an incredibly good a form of splitting, denying, because of course you guys feel our lack of intimacy. You feel how distant we are. You feel whatever's going on. But we think if they don't know the facts, then I can keep this box over here and I can keep that box over there. And by the way, we are very invested in keeping these things separate because we know what would happen if you found out and, uh, and, or we would know what happens if you completely dive into that and give the rest of our lives up. So we like to put our, ourselves into boxes and as, and there the train shall meet because if they come crashing together well that's usually when we see you in a treatment program yes and it says what tools for each side do you recommend to get through this not dealing with the obvious the treatment program is a great way to start you know unpacking all of that so but it, you know it still comes down to you have to learn to be able to tolerate really uncomfortable unpleasant feelings and I guess I have a saying for you, which, and I say this a lot, the guys in treatment really like this saying for some reason, reality wins. Mm. If the reality is that this person is able to open up, willing to commit, you know, they, they're trying and really, really trying, then that's going to be your reality. And if they're playing at it to soothe, to comfort you, but they really are wanting to keep the double life, 
you know, reality will win and they will get caught again or they'll end up in the same place. So um, you can count on the fact that if we're still doing it eventually, you will know. Um, and by the way, I want to say to you, Tammy, I was talking to a spouse today. She didn't know what her husband was doing, but she knew. She knew he was distant. She knew he was lying. She knew he was rolling over when they used to cuddle every little side. So you addicts, by the way, who are married to a man or a woman, I hear this all the time. He must be a magician. She must be a witch because they always know when I've done it. I can come home on Tuesday and they didn't say anything to me. And Wednesday, they're like, what's wrong? Well, you seem distant. How do they know that? And the answer is we're not that good. We think that we can come home on Wednesday after acting out and exactly act like we did on Tuesday. We show all these signs that we don't see, but our partners pick up on it right away. And of course, and they will push that down in the beginning. Well, that's not real. And we encourage them. Oh, that's not true. That's not what's going on. And then we make you doubt yourselves, which is called gaslighting. Okay. Next question. Let me get this one. So how long does it take to really heal from sexual addiction? I have been acting out for over 15 years with chat rooms and porn, um, uh, extending other programs for over 25 years. I am just starting a 12 step program. I'm at, um, I meant porn for 25 years and attending a 12 step program and other meetings in couples therapy. I've been married 48 years. I'm willing to do the work now. Can I save my marriage? So what was the first the first part was, how long does it really take to heal from sex addiction? It's been acting out for, well, married for almost 50 years, been looking so, at for 25 years. Can he save his marriage? To me, the key question is heal. Like, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that it's going to go away and never come back? No. Does it mean that you, when you have the desire to do it, you have new tools and new ways of living and a greater level of honesty? Sure. But we don't ever heal addiction. Addiction is a... Uh, is a form of mental illness. And I can tell you how that works. If you're depressed, you relapse into depression over stress. When strong emotional things come up, you crawl in bed instead of facing them. I mean, depression comes out over a certain set of circumstances. And guess when we act out, when we're stressed out, when we're worried about problems, when we... So if you look at it that way, we have a chronic problem that is a brain problem that unfortunately they just don't have any pills for. And so... We have to learn and to live with the fact that this isn't going to go away. And I want to say that, and so do your spouses. You have to learn, you have to make a decision. Do you want to live with someone who's going to be struggling with this the rest of their lives? Um, and I would say that you can, provided we're honest with you, provided we don't ever leave you wondering what we're doing uh, when we say, we're, you know, you, if I can come back to you and say, Yesterday, I got to be honest, I stopped at a massage parlor and I let somebody, you know, and I, and I paid someone to do X, Y, or Z. If someone tells you that, I got to say that you partners are going to be destroyed, but there's going to be a little part of you that says, well, isn't this interesting? Because now I'm hearing the truth. And before I was lied to. And so in the way, does the problem go away? No. Can you stop for long periods of time? Yes. But what's even more important than that is what we named our treatment program, Integrity. I had a, pro, a treatment program called the Sexual Integrity Program. Now I have a program called Seeking Integrity. This is one of my favorite words, and it speaks to compartmentalization. Because when you are putting your lives in boxes or your life in boxes, you are disintegrated. People look at you and sometimes they see this person. Sometimes they see that person. Some of the people would be shocked to know that you did this 
That's not integration. Integration is I'm the same person all the time. You may not know everything about me, but if you did, you wouldn't be surprised. I've been married 20 years and there isn't anything that my spouse doesn't know, nothing. And you know how wonderful it is to come home and know that I don't have to lie, that I don't have to hide, that I don't have to worry, that, that I'm going to be found out. And by the way, do you sex addicts that go a little deeper? It's so nice in recovery to know an itch is just an itch. Because when I had an itch, when I came home, I was like, oh, do I have this disease, that disease? What, you know? Now I know I have been bitten by a mosquito and I don't have to live with those fears all the time. I used to get sick a lot, cold after cold after cold. I thought I was just that kind of person. No, I was acting out with all these different people. I was exposing myself. How nice it is now that I actually don't get colds very often. Well, now I wear masks, so I'm, you know. Um, so a lot of the anxiety and worry and and inability to connect goes away when we become integrated and start having our words and our actions match up. So I'm going to tag on. So I started off um, before Dr. Rob was able to join us and said, the, if you pursue your recovery with the same energy that you pursued, your acting out, you'll do really well, but it's going to take a lot. Um, I hear that you're going to a 12 step and you're doing couples therapy. You know, I would encourage you to focus on recovery for your addiction. Ideally, we would love to help you. We've helped, you know, guys from young twenties to over 70. Yeah. I have a guy who called me the other day and he's 81 and he wants to come in April. I was like, rock on, you know? So, I mean, it's, so it's not too late, but those are really old patterns. And, and if you think with all due respect, that just going to a 12 step meeting and doing a little bit of couples therapy is going to rapidly give you the healing that you're looking for. I, I don't see that as a, as a much higher level of, of help. Dr. Rob talked about it earlier too. It's like, we want to stop the behaviors, but addressing those things. So it doesn't just turn into the whack-a-mole of like, well, now I'm eating a chocolate cake every night or I'm doing I'm whatever. So, so I, I would invite you to explore a, a deeper level of, of healing. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. And by the way, there was something else in that question about a long relationship and can it like 48, 48 years. years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, someone who's lived with you 48 years and I assume you weren't 10 when you got married. So you're probably in your late sixties or older. Here's the truth. The couples that break up around these kinds of issues are most often couples that haven't been together very often. They haven't established a whole financial, spiritual kids, church work, you know, they don't have all of these roots with each other. And most often, if the guy's been acting out, for example, I see a woman who's been married for two years and she sees the road ahead and she can say, I'm not, I don't, I'm not up for this ride for the next 35 years. But those of you who've been living and working together for 15, 20, 30 years, it's very hard to say, well, I'm just going to throw all that out and start again. So it, I think the reality is like 90% of you couples stay together and most specifically the ones who've been together a very long time. Do you think that your 
65 or 70 year old spouse wants to go out and start again? Do you think that there aren't parts of you that they still love and care about? And obviously they do because they've been with you so long. And by the way, it probably meant, well, you've spent the majority of your adult lives together. You've lived with each other longer than you live with your parents or anybody else in your whole life. Addiction. I say this to the guys in treatment a lot. We want to see ourselves in black and white terms. They're good. They're bad. They're right. They're long. One of the things that spouses go through when you find out about us is this thing that, I, that we call ambivalent love, meaning sometimes you look over us and we're the person you always love. We're the person who's playing with the kids or we're the person who's making you dinner. And you just think for a moment, wow, I really. And then, I don't know, you see an ad for a bikini and you're like, oh, well, those are the women or men. You know, that's who we slept with. And then you're furious at us and you hate us. And it's very hard for you partners because you have to go back and forth between I love them and I hate them. I love them and I hate them. And that's part of your craziness. Not that you're crazy. That's part of what you inherit from us when we have left you loving us. But then all of a sudden we show you the other side. So the bottom line about this is I do think that most couples can find a way out no matter how, and especially the ones who've been married a very, very long time. Um, 48 years is a l several lifetimes. Um, any thoughts, Tammy? Yeah, I would invite your spouse to join the old lady posse tomorrow morning at 8.30 in the morning. There, that is, they named it, but that is specifically for women of a certain age who have been with their person for a longer period of time. And everything we do is from a pro-dependence lens, not codependence, which I mentioned earlier. You know, it's not you're bad, you're an enabler, you're codependent. It's like you love somebody who's broken and their support for the partners, you know, on our platform, sex and relationship healing.com to get that support for them while you hopefully work on you. So next question, how are addicts abusive behavioral issues towards his spouse specifically addressed in our treatment center? Example, verbal abuse, physical threats and intimidation, anger, yelling, et cetera. So one of the things that I've always done in treatment, no matter what program I was creating or working in, is I really believe that if you're in a relationship, the voice of your partner needs to be there. Um, I run things maybe different than some other folks. Uh, I want the spouses involved from the beginning. I want you to be online with us and maybe with your spouse. You're going to need to hear from the therapist on, you know, a couple of times a week. What's going on? What are, um, so um, I was going to set that up for something. Hold on just a second. Um, can you tell me, I seem to be losing the question. So um, how are addicts abusive behavioral issues right. towards a spouse, including verbal, physical threats, right. intimidation, anger, yelling? So when let's say Mr. X comes into treatment at Seeking Integrity and Mrs. X has this history of what's happened, I don't believe it's not that I don't believe. I think that the person who's in treatment, the addict, they have their own way of looking at this. They don't necessarily think they've been abusive. They think that they did the right thing. They don't think, you know, we have a whole warped way of looking at life from our relationships. So um, it's really about, um, gosh, tell me that question again. I want to get that moment. The word is first sentence. How do addicts abusive behavioral right. issues? So what spouse? we do in treatment is... We ask you often before Mr. X comes into treatment or whether your partners, well, we treat men. So, and we ask you spouses to write a letter, maybe a couple of pages. It's part of treatment. What have you been through? 
what were your experience of physical abuse, emotional abuse? And you write all that down. What were the, how were you lied to? What has your life been like? What has happened since you found out? Um, and what we do is we ask them to read that letter or we read that letter in group therapy. So we physically bring in your voice, literally your words about what you've been through and everyone in treatment has to hear it. And so whatever you've been through, it's very clear that you have a very clear vision of what it's been and you are letting us know and the group know. And by the way, it is most frequently the case when we read those letters, I know you're not used to them, but half the men in the group start crying. It's interesting, Tammy, I just want to say this to you. I, years ago, I bought, brought a young colleague, a young intern into one of the men's groups. And after the group, she said to me, I didn't know men could have feelings. <laughs> I didn't know wow. men cried, you know? Yeah. yeah. When they hear your words of how you have hurt them and you're not there going like this, but they're just hearing it. That's how they learn about their. And once we hear it in the group, then we start talking about, well, what is abuse? There are lectures that we have on, on um, victimization and abuse. And we talk to them about what is abuse. Here are the actual things that are abusive. You know, I can say to you, shut the F up. Doesn't seem abusive to me, but it is. I, I, one more thing. There was a, one of the couples I talked to recently, I heard this person had been lying for 30 years, you know, and the ways he lied and the ways he gave his spouse hope and then walked away. You know, I basically said to her, he's been beating you up. There is no difference between him whacking you across the face or him betraying you and hurting you emotionally. You're an abused spouse. And I think not all of you are in that situation, but he would never say, I, he would say, I never hit her. I was never abusive. She didn't know about most of this. How could I be, be abusive? Because every time she came to you or he came to you and said, I want more, where are you? And you lied or you told, or you said, I'm really here and I'm not. It's incredibly abusive. You are denying someone their own reality. And if you do it long enough, guess what happens to your spouses? You lose your minds. And then we addicts say, oh, look, they're crazy. See why I, you know, you never can win you spouses unless we are dedicated to healing and couples heal. They really do. I'm going to jump around in case we run out of time, but this one is really, uh, they're all important. Don't get me wrong. Three years from D-Day, our daughter who is 12 is picking up on our toxic relationship. When is a good time to let her know what's going on with the essay? Also, what is the best way to tell her? And do we, I'm sorry, did we say how old their daughter was? 12. So three okay. years from D-Day, our daughter okay. who is 12 is picking up on our toxic relationship. Okay. What to do. So let me be as clear as I can possibly be. Never, never, ever tell your children ever. Why would you want to tell, especially at 12, when a child is formulating their own sexuality, why would you ever want to tell a child about their parents' sex life? They will never forget that. They'll always have, when would you want a child to have images or thoughts or feelings about your sex life? That's not a, ch children are not meant to handle that. That's none of their business. You can say to them, mom and dad have been fighting. Mom and dad, have, you're right. What you're feeling is correct. And most importantly, it's not your fault. There's nothing you, because kids will take it on, you know, and we still love you. We both love you. This is our problem. But you don't tell them about the problem. That and, and by the way, some of you spouses, and I think this is unfortunate, in your anger, will go to your children and say, I can't believe what your mom did, or I can't believe, do you know what your dad did? And that is never going to leave them. 
um, because, and by the way, it hurts your marriage or relationship because what happens then is they start thinking, I don't want to talk to dad. Look what he did to mom. Or I don't want to talk to mom. They shouldn't be. And they start interfering and taking sides. And what a nightmare and mess that is. For, we had a couple of times we worked with a while ago. They had a bunch of kids. One of our first folks, I think you probably remember this. And part of why they couldn't get it figured out was every time they started to move toward each other, one of their kids would say to mom, how could you do that, mom, after what he did that to you? Or they would write a letter to dad saying, don't you dare talk to mom after what you. So the kids became uh, an impediment to the an impediment. Is that right? The kids interfered with their process. You know, the so number one, we never tell any children. I had a client. I think I have a client in treatment who is some 22 year old. What do I say to her? Nothing. doesn't matter what age they are. No child needs to know about their parents' sex life, but they do need validation for what they're feeling, which is, yeah, you hear mom and dad fighting. Yeah. You feel the tension. Of course you do. We are struggling. They need to have their reality validated, but they don't need to know the details ever. And if you want someone to talk to, to take your side, Find a therapist, find a friend, find a pastor, but don't go to your children because that asks them to become your parent and that's not their job. Okay. Um, so my wife, Ground Zero D-Day two weeks ago, wants to know how to make the pain end. She knows essentially everything. I always hate when I hear that because it's like essentially everything. Um, I did and it's filled with pain because of it. Okay, I have a question for you, though, Tammy. We supposedly were supposed to stop 15 minutes ago, so we're just running over. Is that correct? Yeah. I just want to. Will, have, will you answer? You know, well, because we did. So will you answer this one and then we'll end? Yeah, yeah. It's not that. Go. I just want to make sure that. So one of the things I just want to say to you guys that we have to role model is boundaries. I, when I'm I in know. treatment, the group needs to end on time. You need, you know, if we don't model that, this isn't about Tammy. She is respecting boundaries. We're going to do this for an hour. That's what we committed to. It's just move forward a little bit right? Um, because I was running late. But yeah. um, if we just went an hour and a half, we'd be telling no, you no, that no. we're sloppy yeah. or that we don't pay attention or that you can get away with stuff. So we actually model in treatment and even here uh, what we expect of you. So Tammy, um, to the next, last question. Yes. My wife, Ground Zero D-Day two weeks ago, wants to know how to make the pain end. She knows essentially everything, which, like I said, huge red flag for me. I did, and it's filled with pain because of it. Well, I wrote this book called Out of the Doghouse, a relationship-saving guide for men caught cheating. And one of the things that I ask in there is, how long do you think it's going to take your wife or husband or whoever to get over it? And nine times out of ten, you say, Six weeks, six months, nine, you know, and of course, then by then you're going to your spouse and saying, I'm tired of seeing that angry face when I come home, you know, where, when are you going to, and my experience is it can take 12 to 18 months provided we're doing all the right stuff. We're not lying. We're not cheating. We're being honest. We're going to 12. We're doing what we need to do. It can take a year or more for that spouse to move off of. I'm not sure whether I want to be with you or not. And by the way, that is our job to give them the grace. The worst thing that you guys can do or you women can do who've cheated and acted out, please don't apologize. Please don't ask for forgiveness. Just do your work. Because when you apologize, 
you don't know if what you're when you apologize, you're asking for that person you love to think about letting it go or think about moving past it. And that's not fair. And it's really unfair for you to ask for forgiveness because they need as long as they need. Now, I will say this. If about 18 months have gone by and you've really been trying and that spouse is at the same level of anger that they were at the beginning, that's not healthy either. If you're really doing the right stuff and that partner, what I often will say to partners when it's been a year and a half, you know, is do you realize that at a certain point, your anger is counterproductive? At a certain point, if we are really working and doing everything we can, then we're actually beginning to be ready to be available to you and your anger pushes us away. Not that we don't deserve it, but, you know, a year of anger, a year and a half, at a certain point, you guys also need to de-escalate and begin to believe that the process is going to change. Otherwise, um, there, you know, it's like, again, like whack-a-mole. So I'm angry. I'm you know, like, you never quite get it together. By the way, you don't have to forgive. I don't know that you'll, and you don't have to forget you, you. In fact, I wouldn't encourage you to, nor could you, but you do need to find a place where you can understand that this person you love is deeply troubled and deeply broken. It's not your fault. You didn't make it happen. They had the problem before they ever met you and that you're going to have to find a way to come to peace with it. doesn't mean you forgive. doesn't mean you forget, but that you understand that you have more together than just this and that the meaning that you share and have shared is, um, can't be destroyed by simply with this. Um, yeah. Anything else, Tammy? Just a quick on that. Cause it sounds like I shared everything. There was no therapeutic process with it. And so, um, out of the doghouse, yes, but get professional help and get support for each of you. Um, because trying to put the pieces back together again, she's she shattered. I'm just, you know, she's shattered. So, um, it's going to take time. And I, I want to briefly say something about that spouses, you often say to us, I want to know everything. I want to know everything. And then when you know everything, you have lots of you, you guys. So we think if we just answer this person's question, if we just tell them, then they're going to feel better, but you're not going to feel better no matter what we say or how many questions we answer, because we've ruined your life. So ultimately we addicts, and this is really tough have to say, no, I'm not going to tell you anymore until you're in therapy, until you're getting support, because I refuse to devastate you with all this information. The truth is I can tell you everything and I'm going to feel better. Woo, I got that off my chest. Now I have integrity, but we have destroyed the person that we told. So even though you spouses believe if you know everything, you're going to feel better, you're not. The last thing I want to say about that is a lot of times when you spouses, you go through our cell phone bills, you go through our wallets, you go through our uh, you know, browsers, you look everywhere you can. Some of you hire private detectives. And we often think, oh, well, that means that they're just looking to prove that I'm still doing it so they can go after me. I don't think that's what it means. I think partners are looking for a reason to stay. And they're hoping that they're not going to find another thing that condemns this relationship and they have to protect themselves. They're going to look through everything to see if it's safe to stay, not to put another nail in your coffin. So when they're, Oh, and, and one more thing about this, I say this a lot, not recently, the opposite of love is not hate. If your spouse freaking hates you, they're still in there with you. The opposite of love is indifference. 
It's when that person says, you know, I don't care what they do. I'm kind of I'm done with this. I'm out of there. That's when love is gone. When they're furious, it means they're still in there. So don't take an angry spouse's the feeling of that as this is over. They don't love me. They're still passionately involved with you if they are passionate about their feelings. When they have moved on is when you need to worry. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.